Welcome to Vancouver Opera Offstage. I'm your host, Les Dalla, Chorus Director and Associate Conductor at Vancouver Opera. Join me for this bi-weekly podcast as we connect with opera experts, artists, staff, and others to explore the world of opera on and off the stage. We are honored to share our stories on the unceded homelands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Today, we're speaking with soprano and multidisciplinary performer Teya Kasahara and tenor Asita Tenekun, who are joining us from Toronto. Hi, I'm Teya Kasahara. I'm a soprano and opera singer, theatre maker based in Toronto, and a co-founder of Amplified Opera. Hi, I'm Asita Tanakun, born and raised in Sri Lanka and moved to Toronto in 2014. I am a tenor and a co-founder of Amplified Opera as well. Welcome, Teha and Asita. It's so great to have you on this podcast. I really appreciate your agreeing to speak with me. I'd love to start off by just having you tell us a bit more about yourselves and your journey into opera. What fuels you as artists? What made you choose opera as a professional career path? Taya, maybe if you wouldn't mind beginning. Sure, my pleasure. I first saw opera at the UBC Summer Music Institute when I was 15 years old in 2000. So 20 years ago this summer, actually, it's kind of uncanny. It's like literally July 16th, and it was around that time exactly. So I met Nancy Hermiston that first summer and other opera singers who were doing their degrees, like Justin Welsh and Nima Bickerstaff and Melanie Kruger, Rosalind Jones all the greats from back then. And I was just completely overwhelmed and in awe and so excited. And I was like, I need to do that. And so I launched into this workshop and stuck it out for a week and lived on campus and ate at the cafeteria and saw Magic Flute in Swedish, the Igmar Bergman's 1975 film downstairs in the music building, you know, with the big lecture hall there on the big screen. And I said to myself, if I could sing the queen of the night, just once in my life, I'd be so happy. I'd be so satisfied. And fast forward 10 years later, it's part of my repertoire. And that's kind of what launched my career a little bit. And now I have a show that's called The Queen and Me that really unpacks female stereotypes in opera and reflecting it back on my own personal journey with gender and race. And yeah, That is kind of the story of me getting started. I definitely think that what inspired me first back then is still something that I come back to today and why I keep singing opera. I think it's the feeling of witnessing the amazing Olympic-esque action that can come out of a human body, that huge voice, that power, but also the nuances that can come out of the human voice. And then the whole culmination of an amazing story and orchestral music and set and lighting and design and costumes and all of this huge, huge, huge culmination of all of this beauty and this magic and these efforts of putting something together and everyone having their part, but working together to do that. That still really excites me to be a part of that as a singer, but also now as a thinker, as a theater maker to expand the form. So I still really hold on to that as I'm making multidisciplinary theater today and also how I can relate and reflect this discipline to my politics now and to my personal life and to make it meaningful today in 2020. 
Thanks. I appreciate that response. It's true, right? The world of opera, when we're in it, it feels like its own universe. I loved what you said about magic and beauty. That's so true that the best of times, we feel like we're in this paradise and it's such a beautiful place to be when things are firing on all cylinders. Asita, over to you. I have my mom to blame or to thank for music being a big part of my life and being my career. When I was younger, she forced me to join our school choir, the chapel choir at the school I went to. And then when I was 15, she forced me to go in for my first private voice lesson. And I was kicking and screaming, not wanting to go, but I went in, loved it. It's a very small Western classical music community in Sri Lanka, mainly around Colombo, the capital city. And I ended up at 15 winning an all-island concerto competition in the vocal category. And that was sort of the beginning for my journey as a solo singer. I quickly fell in love with it, decided to go to law school in Sri Lanka because a career in performance in Sri Lanka isn't really a viable option. And after about a year of law school, I decided, you know what? I know that music is going to be important to me. I should at least try and apply to a few schools overseas because the financial hurdle was the biggest stumbling block. And I ended up applying to five schools in the States, ended up getting a really wonderful scholarship to go to Indiana University, went there, decided to go home after that for a year and a half, and then ended up in Toronto at the Glen Gould School doing an artist diploma and decided to stay in Toronto because I love the city and I love Canada. I love the idea of what Canada is and can be. What fuels me as an artist comes to me on two fronts. On the personal front, it has to do with feeling totally 100% myself when I'm on stage performing. I don't think I feel that way. I don't think I feel fully myself at any other time, even just walking on the street. And I love the liberation that it brings and being able to stand on stage and express myself 100%. From the perspective of what I think it brings to the public and to communities, it's the idea that music and live performance art makes things that can't be explained understandable. This happened to a couple of friends of mine. I wish it happened to me because I wish it was my story to tell, but they were speaking with a Vietnam War veteran in the States. And when he found out what they did for a living, they are musicians as well. He said to them, you help us make sense of the things that don't make sense. So I think that is the second element of why I love doing what I do. You reminded me like years ago, a friend who was working in the downtown east side at a clinic basically for HIV patients. And that place was just flooded all the time. And we went for a drink. His former partner was a musician friend of mine that I worked with. And he was telling me sort of about what he did. And I remember just having these feelings of guilt. And I said, wow, you know what I do, I do this because I love it. And music is so powerful to me, but it makes me think I'm not contributing to society like the way you are. I mean, you're saving lives. And he looked at me and he said, you can't stop doing what you're doing because what you do helps people like me. So that when we come out of something like that, where you're dealing with death and people in desperate situations, we need to know that there's art and beauty. And that was one of the most powerful things anybody had ever said and made me think, okay, like, you know, I still do feel privileged in that way because what we get to do is not life and death in the same way, but it is important. There's a reason we're all doing it. And that was a big realization for me, especially when the pandemic first hit mid-March and everything shut down immediately. And it was kind of like triage time for theaters, for, for every industry, really, for schools, for kids. And then I saw these videos come out from Italy, people making music on their balconies. 
and trying to find a little bit of joy or a little bit of respite or hope in all of the sadness and the death and the sickness that was really hitting Italy hard. And I was like, well, if these Italians can do it, why not us? We're opera singers. Opera is steeped in in this Italian tradition and history. So I just started singing from my balcony one day and my wife, Mel, she was filming it. And it not only brought me so much joy and relief to be able to do it live and to see my neighbors and neighbors I've never even met and like passerbys on the street, just kind of stare up and wave or clap or whatever. But um, I got so many responses from strangers, from like local Toronto people and from the videos as well, just to be like, thank you. We needed this. And so, yeah, that was a huge wake up call that artists and art and music, especially in really challenging times, we need that. We need that as artists, but everyone, everyone needs that to be able to feel again or not feel, you know, and just to put some of those emotions aside and escape into something and to be able to keep going. For our listeners, I was looking at your website, Taya. You did 19 videos for COVID-19 and a wide range of repertoire, Puccini, Mozart, Foray. I think there was even a little phantom in there, right? And I thought, well, this is great. And boy, you've got rapturous applause from your neighbors. The videos are online. And of course, we're going to make that a part of the recommended list. And Azita, I saw that you just did one also through Tapestry Opera, right? I believe it was for a care home or frontline workers uh, video just came out a few days ago. Yeah, about a month ago, um, I got a call from Michael Mori saying they want to experiment with trying to take music to long-term care facilities in and around Toronto. And if I'd be interested, and I said, sure, as long as everyone's safe within the guidelines, I'm up for doing whatever it takes to get me singing again. And that experience, it was very overwhelming in a good way, if I may put it that way. Just because I was there, it was the first time I was singing in public since March happened. And seeing people out on their balconies at the long-term care facility, people were out in the courtyard and there was enough distance because there was a, a row of bushes between myself and people who were sitting out in the courtyard. And the response to hear what people had to say after was really touching and validates my decision to pursue this as a career. Um, There was one lady who said that her husband had passed a week and a half before that and how much it meant to her just to have some music shared with that community and for herself. So I think it's a wonderful initiative that Tapestry has undertaken. And if I'm not mistaken, we do have a few more of those similar box concerts coming up. Nice. You both are co-founders of Amplified Opera. I'd love for you to tell us more about the creation of this new company, the vision. I'm curious, was there any other organization that you were aware of that had a similar mandate? Maybe, Taya, I'll start with you. Definitely, yeah. So Amplified Opera started off as a conversation just between Aria Umezawa, who's also another co-founder, and I. Back in 2017, we were just chatting. Aria was back from San Francisco visiting for a little while because she was doing her Adler Fellowship as an opera director there. And we had been talking about kind of mainly me, like I was expressing how I found it so hard to be able to express myself authentically, even in an audition situation. And that I felt like, you know, what if I wear this dress or make sure I have this bra on with the right amount of curves or these heels that have this many inches as opposed to fewer or really high. 
And I have to make sure, okay, these earrings or this hairstyle, or should it be long? Should it be short? It's always been a constant back and forth, whether I should have long hair or short hair, because I sing soprano repertoire, very feminine characters. And I was always taught, make it as easy as possible to get hired. Present yourself in a way that they can't say no, and that they could really picture you in the role. And that usually ends up being something that's quite conventional or conventionally female or basically whitewashing myself as well. So I had struggled thinking, okay, maybe I should just wear a tux and see what happens. And Aria, she so wonderfully illuminates the truth for me often and for many of us in Amplified Opera. But she says, well, you're not getting the job anyway. So what do you have to lose to really be yourself in an audition or in a performance or in all of these things? And I was like, you know what? You're right. So instead of trying to like bend myself again or or try to f- crack the code of how a casting director will cast me for this, um, it just kind of woke me up a bit. And I had told her about this show, The Queen and Me, that I was writing and I had this first little iteration of it through Buddies in Bad Times Theater, their creator's unit. Um, and she was really excited about that. And she watched the archive video really poor quality archive video. I was like this little blob because I had cellophane all over me and the lights were flashing. So I just looked like this shiny blob in this really dark kind of like 1990s version. Anyway, she loved the video and she thought, you know, you need to do something. So we used the name Amplified Opera, which actually came from a colleague of hers, Sean Waugh at San Francisco Opera, because they wanted to do a podcast back then, but nothing kind of came of it. So we got Sean's permission to use the name and because of Toronto Arts Council, you have to apply as a collective. You can't apply as an individual. We did that. We got the funding and then I was able to expand on this show. Then Arya came back to Toronto and we planned a concert series called Amplify. And that was our first kind of public launch back in October 2019 We had artists from the States and also in Canada, Montreal, and locally here. We presented three different concerts, Um, one that featured Lori Rubin, who was a blind mezzo-soprano, and Liz Upchurch, pianist, visually impaired, talking about their own unique experience with vision loss and being an opera pianist in the industry. Then there was my show, a concert kind of work in progress presentation talking about gender expectations in opera. And then we also had Kenneth Overton, baritone from the States, and Rich Coburn, uh, pianist in Montreal, and Michael Mohammed as the director. I think he's also based in San Francisco, talking about the African diaspora and how that differs from Canada and the U.S. and across the border and their relationship with opera being Black. And so we really wanted to create a space where amplified opera could connect the art with public discourse and to have really thorough and deep and wide and slow conversations with the public, with artists who are, whether they're performing or whether they're not, whether they're just attending and supporting, and to stimulate this kind of community that really wants to talk and wants to engage and to deal with conflicting and challenging viewpoints, many viewpoints, and to be able to hold them simultaneously in these spaces. And that's where Amplified Opera really started. And then Asita and Marion we've brought on, and I'm going to pass it over to Asita. Yeah, that first concert series, I was only able to make it for the concert that Kenneth, Rich, and Michael presented 
And it was just illuminating for me as a performer myself to sit there and watch this show that was music that was already in existence, but being framed in a way that amplified the message the creators of the show wanted to put forward. And to me, that's what Amplified is, is this space that exists so artists can actually come together and have conversations about what they want to say, as opposed to a show being imposed on them, or as an organization, this is what we want you to say. Instead of doing that, saying, here's a space to say what you would like to say, go for it. And I think that's something that industry-wide tends to get forgotten or overlooked a lot is the fact that artists come into the room with ideas of their own, with ideas of our own, whether it's performing Handel or Mozart or whether it's performing new music that they are involved in the creation process of. There is a lot of myself as an artist, if I walk into a room, that I take with me to the character that I'm playing. And I don't think there's enough space in the way opera is run and its regular processes for those conversations to happen, which I think having those conversations and artists being able to express themselves fully as individuals in the creative process only makes the art form richer. And that's what excites me about being a part of Amplified. I noticed on your website, you recently had sessions called Holding Space, where you invited artists to speak. Could you give us an idea of what some of those conversations were like? The idea for the holding space sessions, we had three preliminary private conversations, very gratefully supported by Tapestry Opera as well, was to create a space where IBPOC, Indigenous, Black, People of Color artists could gather and have some preliminary conversation about our experiences in the opera industry without it being performative, without it being in a public forum. And for me personally, the importance of that is that we haven't had that space where we can have our preliminary conversations so that we can see that a lot of the problems that we face as individuals, we face as a community. And before getting to a problem-solving phase, I think it's important to be able to pull things out and put them on the table first. And that was really useful. And being part of Amplified and knowing what I was walking into, it moved me to be in a space where people were talking about opera and to not be the only person of color there. I remember just being overwhelmed by it, even though I knew what I was walking into. And there was a lot of very useful conversation. And it was interesting to see, especially with people who came back for each of the conversations. We had them at separate times over the course of a week so that people who were in different time zones could join. And we had a few people come in for all three of them. And I think it was a testament to the fact that we set it up just as a preliminary conversation, that people who came in for all three of them would come back each time with different ideas and things they had thought about in the interim. Yeah, we didn't want to stipulate that we had some kind of solution as a little mini institution of amplified opera over IBPOC artists or that we would be speaking for them. We just wanted to provide the space and just listen and notice what were some of the common themes coming up and to provide a space that is affirming as well, you know how Asata was saying that to not feel so alone because I think it can be a very lonely walk through this industry if people aren't reaching out and if we aren't questioning and challenging the system and the systemic racism and systemic oppression which is now very much on people's minds you know with the time that we're in. 
So it's exciting also to see that there are other very inspired individuals who want to take leadership in possibly advocating for more IBPOC artists and that it's not going to be like Amplified's thing. We don't have any ownership over it, but we want to provide that support. And if that means maybe monthly or bi-monthly just hangout talks in the future, you know, that might be something that we might offer, but maybe there might be a committee that might form out of that for them to lead, you know, and to advocate for artists and to provide other opportunities of support or of resources or other endeavors in the future, specifically to address systemic racism. I know for myself, this is a time of a lot of listening and learning and awareness of things that actually, I have to be honest, were not really at the forefront in my mind. So I applaud the work you're doing. I thank you for that. I would love to know what are some of the changes you would like to see traditional opera companies make and how do you envision those changes happening? Asita, do you want to start? This is something I've been thinking about a lot and was actually why I started the Vandalproba blog as well. Because having this time off from March, it got me thinking about what it is that I really love about this art form. And why it is that sometimes I don't feel satisfied with the process. I don't feel satisfied with shows I go to watch, with operas I go to experience as an audience member. And I think, yes, the conversation is always we need to have more diversity in casting. And I think that conversation has been going on for a while. And it's good that that happens. And yes, we need more of it. But I think we're also recognizing the fact that that isn't really fixing the issues that exist within the industry and organizations, because at the end of the day, our audiences are dwindling. And what I would like to see are changes made from two fronts. One is when it comes to what's happening on stage. It's not enough to just invite or hire diverse artists and diverse production teams because you're essentially asking those artists to come in and perform in Eurocentric shows or shows that are still being presented from a Eurocentric point of view. So I think considerations need to be made about how traditional shows are presented, if certain traditional shows need to still be presented. Because at the end of the day, yes, the music is great, but then how many communities feel disenfranchised because of the offensive material that you are putting up on stage in their mind? And the other side of things that I would love to see change is how organizations are structured, just because we talk about, okay, we need more people of color in leadership. But then you're essentially, again, asking a person of color to take leadership in an organization that is set up in a very colonial framework. So one of the things I would like to see is why is there one person at the top making artistic decisions? Why is there one person at the top making decisions about what direction the company should go in? Because at the end of the day, yes, no matter how many advisors you have, the decision is framed through one person's point of view. And I think in the world we live in, in the country we live in, that just hinders how far opera can reach going forward into the future. I mean, it's an amazing art form that brings together so many elements and music, art, architecture, dance, all of it. I feel so sad when I see it being restricted to just perform from one perspective. And if we gave creative license and had the right people in the rehearsal rooms as well, people who can relate to the content that is being put forward. Those are some of the changes I would like to see. I definitely agree with Asita that there needs to be a shift or a pivot, so to speak, 
a decentralization of where we have been focusing our energy and our resources and where the power has always been. Um, and yes, I definitely agree that we need people of color in leadership positions and, and we need people of color on board of directors because as arts organizations, we are beholden to getting approval of these board of directors. And if that's how we're going to be continuing to run opera companies, arts organizations, theater companies, then we really need to look at that. We need to re- look at getting diversity there and also education about anti-oppression, about anti-racism on the board level. I think it needs to be happening from so many angles. So from board, from administration, from production, technical staff, um, design. Yes, the artists right now are the ones that are kind of talking about it a bit more publicly. But we also need to be doing this at the educational level in those institutions as well, because those places can also be very unsafe for certain IBPOC people or queer people or trans people trying to navigate this system and trying to gain the skills and putting so much trust in these leaders and these educators and these mentors to gain the skills to go into this field and have a viable career. You know, we have such a dwindling opera industry in Canada. Audiences are going down, there's less money, but yet there are more artists coming into the industry. And so how is that ethical as well? Graduating all of these artists when they won't be able to use their skills that they spent thousands and thousands of dollars to acquire. We need to be educating these young minds and these young bodies in a variety of things and also to take away the stigma that doing a variety of things, having a diverse array of skills is a bad thing or it's like, oh, you're not a serious opera singer or you're not a serious opera artist. So really, maybe you should just change your career. But we see the example now in my generation, I'm 35, that in order to stay in this industry as an opera singer or as an opera artist, we have to diversify because there isn't enough work. If I could speak to that too, one of the things I'm talking about in an article coming up is how the rubric we use for measuring success in opera is very much based on, especially when it comes to the larger companies, I feel is very much based on whether it's conscious or not, what opera looks like in Frankfurt or Paris or those big European houses. And that's one of the things I think we have the opportunity now to change because, you know, why should opera in Toronto look like opera in Europe? Why should opera in Edmonton or Vancouver or Manitoba look the same? Because essentially as arts organizations, it's built to serve the community that is around that organization. So I think looking at whether you're performing Mozart or whether you're performing Sokolovich, finding ways to make sure that the art reflects your community, not just in the way the art looks and the people on stage, but in what the art is also saying, the messages that the art is putting out. This might be a radical thought, but what if for the next 10 to 15 years, companies in Canada decided we're only going to hire Canadian or Canadian-based artists? Because there is a wealth of talent in this country And a lot of people who don't get the chances that they need to get in order to improve as well. And that also goes back to breaking away from this Eurocentric idea that you have to have made it in a European opera house in order to be seen as a valid, successful opera singer. Whereas, well, there are so many artists here who are amazing performers, but just because, you know, they haven't performed elsewhere. 
I think we need to have a very serious discussion about the rubric we use in order to measure success in opera. And furthermore, this Eurocentric art form, opera, that has a 400-plus-year-old canon from which we draw, I feel like Canada is still searching for its place or its identity in order to make its mark in the canon. But if we really shifted as a whole, as an industry, across this very vast country with three coasts, to put energy and to put resources in new works like they were 100 years ago or they were 200 years ago. They were performing new works and they were producing new works and composers and librettists and all these great artistic minds were really concerned about how do we reflect our culture now? What do we want to say about Canadians today in 2020, in the 21st century, you know, with all that is going on? There is so much to say. And I feel like we haven't really valued that. You know, we're starting to see that more companies dedicated to new works in the theater industry, because I'm very much also active in the Toronto theater community here. Companies and artists just dedicated, nope, I'm only doing new works. I'm only working on new plays, new productions, cultivating new voices. And that's so wonderful to see that growing. We only have one company in Canada dedicated to that, Tapestry Opera. And it's really sad that there could be just so much more to help composers, librettists, and all the artists involved to imagine something new, as opposed to trying to do the same thing over and over again, or maybe slightly tweak it or slightly reimagine it, you know? And that's not to say that I don't think we should be doing canonic works. I love the canon. It's so rich. There's so much to draw from. And to be inspired by my whole show, Queen and Me, is all canonic works. And there's so much beauty there and power. And that's another thing, too. I would love to see bolder takes on our canonic works as well from directors, from production teams, from casting, from everything, and even the auxiliary conversations that we have around that. But I also want to see value put into new compositions and hopefully for audiences and communities to see that value as well that they can participate as community members and not just as, oh, an audience getting a ticket, seeing a show, that they can be like, wow, that's something I'm really excited about. That makes sense. Or I see myself reflected in that, or that's making me think about something or another community that is going through certain issues right now. And to have conversation in the lobby after in the cafe yeah, I think one of the things I always come back to is I would love to see the outlook and the mindset pivot from how do we placate, how do we least offend the different communities and diverse communities in our society? I would love to see it pivot from thinking of it in those terms to how do we celebrate and highlight the stories and histories of these diverse communities. I think if Canadian opera is looking for a way to be relevant, looking for a way to have a global voice, then why shouldn't that be Canadian opera's clarion call to be, we create opera that celebrates and highlights the rich diversity and the richness that just exists in our communities and the stories that come from those communities, instead of trying to fit an ideal that is very much outdated. It's definitely true that the way most opera companies operate, we tend to be obsessed with these top 20 operas that get recycled every four or five years. And the argument for doing that is because, you know, piece X sells 80% of a house. And so in order to put together a balanced season, you can be risky, but only if you do piece ABC or whatever, because that guarantees you'll have 
But the truth is that now all of those models are crumbling as well. And it's certainly true that a time like right now, when everybody has stopped dead in their tracks, this is the time to take chances, risks, and be adventurous. And I couldn't agree with both of you more that there is absolutely no shortage of great Canadian singers. And it would be easy to cast any opera I can think of with an exclusive Canadian cast. There's no question about that. Either Canadians living here or abroad, whatever. But yes, it's true. Canadians are known on the world stage as outstanding opera singers. We also have some great writers and composers in this country who I'm sure they would be thrilled to death to know, hey, you just got a commission to write a large-scale work with full orchestra, chorus. I mean, people that I know who've had that rare opportunity, they just feel like they've won the lottery. I mean, it's like their dream come true. But why should that be so rare? I guess funding models, everything, people who are the ones providing the means need to be brought into this conversation. And there are passionate people about new work. So everything you said, I see as being 100% possible. And so, you know, keep pushing and we all can do our part to make some of these things happen. Talking about that, because we are in the middle of COVID, we talked a little bit about the videos that you've done, Taya, and I know that you've started your blog. Asita, can you talk about any other projects you've been involved with or any upcoming things that you're looking at? I know that for the time being, we're all on lockdown or with a very small audience in mind with very controlled situations, which are hardly conducive to what we're used to doing. But of course, all of us right now are frantically thinking, well, what can I do and make things happen? So I'd be really curious to know some of the ideas you might have moving forward. Yeah, so this time it has allowed us to bring on two new co-founders, which has been so wonderful, Asita and Mary and Newman, and to really evaluate what we value as a company and what we value as individual artists too and how we can align all of those pillars So that has been really special to have this time and this slowness and this deep thinking. And now to have these conversations and to not only create community within the IBPOC community, but also to figure out how as a little company we can support underrepresented artists that need support. So we're excited in that vein to keep the conversation going and bring on partners, individuals, organizations with that And alongside of that, we are working with some other organizations coming up in terms of consulting and workshops and masterclasses. I say this with quotes, but we've changed that word now to a gathering of colleagues because it's also we're looking at how our language, even our opera language, we want to decolonize that and decentralize those inherent power structures that have always existed there to oppress or to maintain that power structure. So we'll be working with Opera McGill in the fall for a month long residency and working with all their students in individual coachings and also in these group workshops or gathering of colleagues. And there's many more conversations we're having with companies and also educational institutions down the line for furthering that with other groups. Also, we're looking at Amplify 2.0, so another concert series. And this time around, we're going to be doing a larger development period. So when we first did the concerts in 2019, we only had one week. All the artists from across the States and from Canada met for the first time. We threw them into a photo shoot, a video shoot. We had a big dinner and it was like, okay, we're going to make music now. Here's the show up in like four days. But this time we're going to take 
take some more time for the ideas to come about a bit more organically and to really be able to sculpt something as each individual trio. So we have some really exciting combinations there of artists coming up. And hopefully whenever COVID-19 pandemic is over and we can return to theaters like we had in February and January earlier this year, Amplified Opera will be producing the full production of The Queen and Me with a chamber orchestra in partnership with three other companies in Toronto as well. We're doing the world premiere in Toronto. So whenever we can reopen, we will be doing that. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Our weekly meetings have been a great source of inspiration and joy for me, just because of the passion that's in the room, how action-driven our conversations are, because it's easy to talk about what needs to change, what needs to happen, what would we like to highlight. But for example, even drafting a document, it's always hilarious, but also awe-inspiring for me to see how we work on them. It's on like Google Docs and you see the four different people's curses just flying around the document, drafting something, and it's done. I think it's amazing what could happen when you get a bunch of like-minded people together and leave enough room for the conversation to take place. Because yes, sometimes that takes time, but the result at the end of it is the most effective thing that could come out. I don't know. I always cycle back to this whole idea of why is there just one person very often making decisions. I think there are lots of decisions I can look at that different companies have made in the last few years that I think, you know what, if you had one other person in the room at the same level of decision making who represented or understood a different way of thinking, you could have not made this mistake. So I think that's something worth looking at moving forward for the industry itself. And I think that's why Ari and I early on chose not to call ourselves co-artistic directors when we first started the company and why we chose co-founders and then also why we wanted Asita and Marion to come on as co-founders and not as team producer or lead producer or some kind of delineation or label that would put them under Ari and I or under us. And we really wanted to see each other in a circle, face to face, and that we were all on the same level. We were all at the same table working towards this common goal or these common goals of the company and these values. When we brought Asata and Marion on, we reevaluated all of our values and went through just a very organic process to be able to talk everything out. And then that was very important to whatever big decision we're making or big project we're making, that it is aligning with our values. And I think because we have done all that work very thoroughly and very thoughtfully, it's easy to make decisions now going forward. That the right path to be like, yeah, we want to take on this project and be like, you know what, actually, why these warning bells are going up or these warning flags, it's very clear now why, and that it doesn't align with our company's values. So having done all of that slow work, it's made everything kind of expedited now, which is great. And then one thing I wanted to add towards some of the other projects we're working on, we can't say anything specific yet, but we are also helping produce some new opera that hopefully will have its fruition in a few years. So we're really excited to help support some artists right now with the development and creation of their new works. Yay, that's so exciting. New work, of course, just means a lot of possibilities for, again, not just the performers, but the creators. And I must say, I really admired when I read the mandate and the mission statement of Amplified Opera, when Asita and Marion joined, that that was a very novel approach to call them co-founders as well. That's what resonated to me. I couldn't think of any other example, any company I've ever heard of that 
brings in other people that you are co-founders. That has nothing to do with who started it and when. It's like we are all in this together. So I really applaud that. I found today very inspiring and I've learned a lot. So thank you both. Do you have any last thoughts, anything you would like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I guess from the little time that I've spent now thinking of myself as an artist, as opposed to just an opera singer, that my ideas are worth something. And that if my ideas are worth something, the other opera singers out there, their ideas are worth something. And that they have talents and skills that they can really bring to the table whether it's in an opera rehearsal or in other artistic, musical, theatrical spaces or any place in their life. And that that is valid and it's great and it's valued as well. This is a great time right now, really special time to be able to rethink and reshape how we want to see this industry go forward as individuals, like in how we each want our careers to go forward after this pandemic, through this pandemic time right now. I think it's really illuminating a lot of truths and that we can really find support in each other and to advocate for what we believe is right and what we believe we need and what we believe we deserve. So that's a really exciting time. And I would just encourage, especially the young opera artists out there listening, to know that your voice matters, not only your singing voice, but your speaking voice, your voice and your ideas, and to not be afraid to speak up. Yeah, that was one of the reasons I decided to start writing as well, because there's this idea, right, that as artists, don't say anything that is critical, don't say anything that might not get you hired again. And I think for me, it was a matter of, you know what, this industry needs to change. The art form that we perform is beautiful. And people from time to time talk about, you know, is opera relevant? Is opera dying? You can't kill an art form. It will exist in some way, shape or form. I think the way we do opera needs to die. And that means people feeling like they can share their mind. People feeling that they can call out what they see as being an injustice or what they see as being a hindrance to the art form moving forward. And so I feel hopeful because of the conversations I've been a part of, because of the different ideas I've been hearing and emboldened by the fact that people are now speaking out and speaking up and having their voices heard. And the other thing I would like to add is the fact that, you know, it's easy to be, okay, it's a pandemic, there's no work, we need to put out as much material as possible. And I think it's important to remember in a usual year at this point in time, we're all in summer mode. So I think it's good to remember to take some time off too from feeling like we need to be productive all the time. And know that that is part of the creative process as well, to take a step back, leave things on the table, put the pen down or the baton down in your case less. And just see what possibilities the future can hold. Because yes, it's a tough time and change happens whether we like it or not. And I think the important thing is to figure out, okay, these are the things I can't control. But within the things I can control and within the things that I, I see as needing to change, what can I do to affect that change? And taking the time to do that, which the world and nature has given us at this point. And thank you so much for having us on as well. This has been really wonderful to chat. Yeah, thank you so much, Les. The final message is great. We just have to remember to breathe. You know all about breathing. <laughs> so healing. Sometimes I forget to breathe. Believe you me. Well, so I have to be reminded too. So thank you. Thank you again, Taya and Asita, for taking the time to speak with me today. You raised some very important points and I've learned a lot and you inspire me. Thank you. Keep well, be safe, and hope to see you before long. See you soon. Take care. Thanks so much.
Next week, we will be speaking with internationally respected conductor David Agler. David was music director of Vancouver Opera from 1992 to 1999, and he recently stepped down after a 16-year tenure as artistic director of the prestigious Wexford Festival. David has held leadership positions in opera companies throughout the world and guest conducted across Canada, the US, and Europe. David joins us from his home in Vancouver. We'd love to hear from you if you have any feedback or suggestions for upcoming guests. You can reach us via email at online at vancouveropera.ca. And don't forget to check out our weekly special features on our website at vancouveropera.ca forward slash offstage. This has been Vancouver Opera Offstage. I'm your host, Les Dalla. As always, you can keep up to date with Vancouver Opera at vancouveropera.ca, where you can sign up for our e-newsletter or follow us on social media. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.